This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. You know, I think it's safe to say this morning that we've, we've logged some pretty solid miles together on this subject called work in the past few weeks. I think it's been very helpful to us. We've explored most of the major issues surrounding the workplace. Uh, we've talked about the motivations for work. Uh, we've talked about a man's perspective of work. Remember we had those two large macro views of work. One, it could be simply a concession to the hard reality of life. That's what my job is. Or it can be something higher than that. Work can actually be, for me, a calling from God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the five strategies that could energize our work. We explored those. We looked at those. Those are things still yet to process. But those are the kind of things that if you really look hard and think long enough about those energizers, they can give life to your work. And then last week, we talked about the five practices and the two commitments that every man needs to make if he's going to have a good name at work. Now, we've done all that for one purpose, and that is that in this year together, at least the second half, we've been about trying to upgrade our abilities in the workplace. And hopefully, for many of you, some of the things that we've said has allowed you to feel better about your work. As I told you at the first of the year, one of the things that we have had in mind is to go to this work mirror, and when we ask it, mirror, mirror on the wall, am I doing any good at all at work? Because of the things that you've learned and hopefully are willing to apply, that mirror will smile back at you. And it'll say, you're doing better. In fact, you're winning at work. And that's what we want for every man, to win at the workplace, because most of your adult life is spent there. Now today, we're going to take a hard right turn and talk about something that oftentimes is not associated with the workplace, because it's a sensitive issue. And that is the spiritual side of work. And what we want to talk about today begins with a question. And it's there on your outline. And it's this. Can you take God to work? Does He go there with you? And if so, help me practically know how He goes to work with me. That's what we want to explore today. You know, if you look at surveys, most of the surveys will say to us that most men don't know how to partner with God on the job. That's not something that's really much of a conscious thought to most men. In fact, surveys by George Barna and George Gallup tell us that the reality is, is that the marketplace is oftentimes a fairly spiritually barren landscape where not much spiritually goes on. Not just in what people say to one another. We're not talking about some kind of overt, aggressive evangelism there necessarily, but in the way people interact with one another. 
how they live at work. Most surveys show that there is very little ethical difference or behavioral difference between Christians and non-Christians on the job. George Gallup, in fact, said that of all Christians, all professing Christians, only about 12% of all professing Christians actually have any kind of positive, winsome influence on the job concerning spiritual life. So can you take God to work? The surveys say most don't. The Scripture, on the other hand, says something much more radical. It says, no, every Christian should. Jesus said that we're called to be God's salt and light. In fact, in Jesus' very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, He made the following statement about really all Christians when He said this, You are the salt of the earth. But then He adds, But if the salt has become tasteless, it is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. <laughs> we're supposed to be salt. It also says we're supposed to be light. We're the light of the world. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, we could stop and make a lot of observations about that passage but I want to make the two most obvious observations about that passage. Just jump right out of it at you. Jesus is telling us that at our best, listen guys, at our best at work, we're to be a multi-sensory spiritual experience for those who come in contact with us. That's what that verse is saying. Co-workers around us should be able from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time, they ought to be able to taste God in us because we're salt. There should be something flavorful about the way we do our work and conduct ourselves at work and interact with others at work. We're to be a multi-sensory experience. People should be able to taste God in us at work. Secondly, our coworkers should be able to see their way to God because of us because of the directions that we'll be able to offer them when they ask or need help. That's what salt and light is all about. Some people, when they read the verse, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, they think of that as people who are, quote, in the ministry. They make this huge dichotomy about the secular workforce and a spiritual vocation. But you never see that really in the Scriptures. In fact, when you read Salt and Light, I want you to know on your outline, this is a call for every Christian who works, not just for those who work in full-time Christian ministry. In fact, I'd challenge you this week, if you just pick up a New Testament and read through it, you will come across those who are celebrated as the heroes of the New Testament. Those guys that we call John and Paul and Peter and Matthew, guys like that because of their heroic efforts in proclaiming the gospel around the world. But here's what I want you to know. Those guys are the exception in the New Testament. It is true that Peter, who was in the fishing business, was called out of the fishing business to follow Jesus Christ. It is true that Matthew was called out of the IRS to follow Jesus Christ. But guys, those men were the exception 
And oftentimes we get so focused on them that we forget about us, you. I challenge you to look back and see all the characters in the New Testament who are by far the rule who were not called out. I can think of some right off the top of my head. How about the Roman centurion that Jesus encountered in Matthew chapter 8? Here's a guy who's in the army. He encounters Jesus, and Jesus said, I've never seen any greater faith in all of Israel than what you're exhibiting to me. And in that moment, Jesus had every opportunity to call him away from his vocation. But did Jesus do that? No. In fact, he told this centurion, go back. Go back. Go back where? Into the Roman army, the very army that's oppressing the people of Israel? Yeah. That's where Jesus called this Roman centurion. Back into the army to be salt and light. As I mentioned, Matthew was a tax collector. We celebrate him because he left that job and followed Jesus. What, what about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, who was the chief tax collector and who believed in Jesus? He stayed with the IRS. What about Erastus, who followed Jesus? He stayed as the city treasurer for the city of Corinth. How about Joseph of Arimathea? who stayed with the Jewish Sanhedrin. And take your New Testament sometime and go back at the end of every letter and read all the names of individuals there that are being commended in one way or another for their faith. You know who those people were? Those people were the rule, not the exception. Those were the people who stayed with their day job and who were just as much a called apostle as those who left their job because they were called to do the same thing that Matthew and Peter and John were called to do. And that is, they were called to go and to be salt and light in that little part of the planet that they were supposed to work in. The governor of Georgia, Sonny Perdue, once said it this way, God knows how he made us and how he places us strategically where he needs his servants to make a difference. Just as our military has orders into a specific location, we've been dispatched too, into our work where God needs something done. Now, here it is early in the morning, and that may be a radical thought to you. You're telling me I'm a missionary? Somebody who's called by God into the workforce? How do you do that? Well, we're going to talk specifically how to do that in a moment, but for now, just hear this. If you're a Christian here today, I know not everybody is, but if you're a Christian here today, God wants to go to work with you today. I can tell you that with all authority. He wants to go to work with you today. He wants to help you to do a good job. We've learned that the past five weeks. But here's something else he wants you to do. He wants you in some way to be tasteful to those around you and have some spiritual influence on those around you. Here's the way I would sum it up. 
Work is the world's greatest mission field. <laughs> you know, we often think of some third world country, some unreached people group, some communist country that, that is most needy for the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's what I want to tell you. Work. Work is the world's greatest mission field. You know how I know that? Because that's why God has deployed the most missionaries there. The people who have been sent the most out are everyday workers into their everyday work to be salt and light. Now that creates all kinds of questions for you, I know. Maybe for some of you it scares you to death. <laughs> Let me alleviate that and bring that down into some practical ways that you can feel the reasonableness of that assignment. How does a man let God into his work? I think there are three answers, and I want to give three answers at three different levels, what I call on your outline a basic level, an intermediate level, then an advanced level, because each of the levels require a certain measure of faith on your part and my part. And the higher you go up, the more faith that's required. But let's look at level one, the basic level, which is just this, letting God have his way in you at work. Here's what I mean by that in Philippians 2.13. Here's how it pictures this level. For it is God who is at work in you, in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now look at the verse. It's telling us how God wants to be postured in your life today when you clock in. He doesn't want to be your partner. This is not talking about partnership. This verse is talking about lordship. He wants to be the boss. He wants to give directions. As the verse says, he wants to will at his good pleasure in your life. And he can only do that. Well, let me say this. He won't do that in a forced way. He will only do that when you believe he has the best way. And then we'll all let him have his way in us when we really believe that. Now to be on level one, you have to answer three basic questions. Here's the first one. Am I connected to God? That's the most basic question you can ask. We talked about that earlier in our last semester of men's fraternity when we were talking about a man at home. The most important question a man can answer for his life is, am I connected to God? So I want to stop for a moment again and just ask you, are you connected? I want you to think about it. I want you to look inside for a moment and ask yourself, am I connected to God in a way that's life-giving to me? Here are just some questions you can just ask yourself. Do I feel forgiven? Do I feel free? Do I feel new? Have I felt the power of God in my life? Can I look into my life and say, I felt guided before by God? You know what those questions are? All those questions are connection questions. Are you connected to God? Those are not, by the way, questions about church membership. That's not a question about your religion. Guys, look at me. 
Those are questions about your reality. And you either have it or you don't. Is God real to you? You know, in New Testament times, they ask that question. Look here with me at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It says this. And, and this is just an apostle asking this question to these people in the first century, just like I asked it to you. He says it this way. Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail that test? Now, you know what's interesting about this verse? He's not talking to a group of seekers in the city of Corinth or some pagan philosophers or something like that. This verse was written to people who were regularly going to church at Corinth. These are churchgoers. And he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not so much interested in your church going. I'm interested in your reality. The question is, is Jesus Christ in you? Look in there. And if you recognize he's in you, then you're connected. If today, guys, you look inside and he's not there, then there's a great discovery ahead for you. And I would want you to talk to me or talk to one of the guys in your small group. But gosh, don't leave men's fraternity without having that question answered for you. Now, as we go on, I'm going to assume everybody is connected for a moment. But I, but I want to stop and just remind you, that's the most important question of life because everything builds from there. Everybody with me on that? Okay. Let's ask a second question. How do I interact with God? And if I'm connected, how do I interact with God in the workforce? I have two images for you. There's a right way and a wrong way. And I'm going to give these two images just to help you because I think images help us live the Christian life. The wrong way we can interact with God at work is where God is like a divine waiter. Okay? And, and you know how you interact with a waiter. You call that person over from time to time to help you. You order something when you want it. You get something from that waiter when you need it. You'll call that waiter over from time to time when you've made a mess at your table and you want him to clean it up. Or you want to fix something that's broken because you've broken it or something there is broken. So you call the waiter over to assist you. But when you don't need the waiter, you're content for the waiter to leave you alone, right? That's how a lot of people try to interact with God. Here's what I want you to know. It's very spiritually unproductive. It leaves that person, for the most part, barren, except in times of crisis when they try to call on a God that they really don't know very well. I think the more accurate picture of God is not as a divine waiter, but as the personal trainer. <laughs> I think Jesus would commend that image. I really do. A trainer who we've personally commissioned and enlisted, just like if you were to go into the gym, you, you enlist a trainer to do what for you? To help shape you up because you know you can't do it by yourself. So you've commissioned them to help you do that. And you've chosen to personally place yourself under that person's leadership, right? As a trainer. To, to push you 
and to challenge you and to stretch you, not to be easy on you, but to help you become something that on your own you would have never gotten to. You need that kind of assistance, that kind of push, so to speak, to be the best you can be. So you enlist that trainer. I think that's what a personal relationship with God is all about. He's the personal trainer. This is how I think Jesus pictured it. I'm going to summarize John 14 and John 16 this way, but just look at it. It says, but when he, the helper, the Holy Spirit comes to you in my name, Jesus said, as the personal trainer, here's what he's going to do. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to remembrance all that I've spoken to you. And he's going to guide you into all truth. Now feel that for a moment. Don't let that passage just pass you by. He's saying that I'm going to put my presence within you and I'm going to push you. I'm going to remind you at the critical moments of life, do this, don't say that. Help that person, encourage here. Call that person over, stand your ground, keep your word. And he'll do it at times when it'll scare you to death. But you know where he's trying to take you? Up. That's where he's trying to take you. To be salty in the workplace. So practically speaking, as a believer, I can let God have his way in me at work by doing three things. Here they are. One, I need to learn God's word. We've talked about that. Most of this whole series of messages, as you know, have been built and based on God's word. It's foundational. Secondly, by asking God daily through His Holy Spirit to apply it to my life. And then lastly, responding in obedience when that trainer does apply it to my life. If I do those three things, God will be with me in my work. And the third question that's on your outline, what evidence of God at work in me will co-workers see? It'll be answered this way. Here's what they'll see. If God is at work in me, because I think the pattern is pretty clear. God's at work in you. Here's what they'll see. They'll see you work hard. They'll see you work well. You and I will become a team builder. We'll become an encourager at work. I'll be responsive to authority. I will become a standard bearer. I won't lie. I won't cheat. I won't deceive. I'll keep my word. I'll obey the law. And you know what all this evidence of God in me will give me? It will give me the greatest asset at work that a man needs. And here's what it is. It's spiritual credibility. If I live this way, I don't have to say anything. I mean, God's just at work in me. But if I live this way and start exhibiting these demonstrations of a spirit-empowered life because I need a personal trainer, what's going to happen is people are going to start noticing a little difference. Salty over there. There's light in that office. And suddenly, I'm going to have spiritual credibility without saying a word. I'm just doing my job. It'll be spiritual credibility with my coworkers who are desperately looking for spiritual credibility in the world. It'll also help me move to level two. And here's what level two is, the intermediate level. It's letting God use me or use you to touch others through your work. 
Now we go from letting God work in me to working through me. You know, surveys tell us that 70% of today's workforce, the people around you, 70% describe themselves as spiritually hungry. People all around us at work have deep spiritual longings for God. Did you know that? Did you know the guy that's in the cubicle next to you? Or the guy who's picking up the wrench across from you has a deep spiritual longing for God? Do you know he has questions he can't answer about God? He's trying to fi figure out how he fits in the eternal scheme of things. And what I've discovered interacting with people is so many people today feel spiritually stuck. They don't, they don't know how to move to the next step. They don't know how they get there. They have answers that are questions that they can't answer, and it's just caused them to be paralyzed. And yet, they're hungry. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for someone with credibility. And that's hard to find because for somebody to have credibility, you've got to see them operate in the day-to-day -day until you can trust them enough that you can ask that question that has you stuck. And so God sends out into the workforce people who can provide answers after they've established credibility. That's what all this is about. That's why level two is a little higher level. You know, I learned that lesson in a powerful way when I was in graduate school. A number of years ago, I was working on my master's degree in counseling at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. And that first year when I was in graduate school was, was hard on me. It was hard academically. It was hard relationally. Most of the students that were in this program, it was a small group of students, about 30 to 35 they were all really smart, and in the 70s, they all had extreme philosophies, especially when you're in a psychology department. A lot of them also had extreme lifestyles, and, uh, you know, I got needled a lot in that program. Early on, people needled me because I was the only guy from the South. They, they, they made fun of my Southern accent, but I made the mistake of mentioning God early in the program. So I got marked as being a little strange. So over the course of that first year, what I did is I just put my head down, I worked hard, I tried to build some relationships, and I kept quiet. Between year one and year two of this master's program, the students go on a three-day retreat up into the Cascade Mountains at Lewis and Clark College's retreat center. Now this is a group of psychology students, okay? It's Friday night. I get there. I walk into the retreat center, and I see these bongo drums going off by a guy over there. You know? And the, and the lights are down. And people are smoking marijuana. And a couple of my classmates are over to my right, hooking up in a sleeping bag. It was wild. I remember, remember grabbing one of my... Uh, fellow male students when the professor said, hey, everybody choose a student to sleep with. And I said, you're sleeping with me, buddy. You're in my room. The next day, after we'd had dinner, the professor stood up and he said these words. He said, listen, we've gotten to know each other, but we're going to go a little deeper. 
Here's how we're going to do it. I want everyone in the class to think of one person that you've observed over the last year, but are but you're a little bit afraid of, you're a little bit intimidated by for one reason or another, but you would really like to open your heart up to them. After dinner, I want you to seek them out. And I was sitting there trying to think of who I wanted to be with. And dinner ended. 15 of the 30 students came to me. And you know what they wanted to know? How does God work in your life? Let me tell you about my life. And some of them began to pour out these tragic stories of their extreme philosophies that had led them to pitiful and painful dead ends. And they wanted to know why I still had a smile on my face. Salt and light. That's what we're called to be. I mean, I don't know what you think about when you go to work and what you see around you. You probably see people with ties on or they're looking good, they're acting good, and you can make all kinds of assumptions about the people around you, but most of the people around you are hurting. Most of the people around you need hope. Most of the people around you are desperately trying to figure out what life is all about and where it's headed, but they're not going to open up to just anyone. Only the someone who has spiritual credibility. Here's the truth. Spiritual opportunities are everywhere. And when you have the faith to let God use you according to His will, His will, as He wills, He will move you into opportunities to allow you to offer what I call a winsome witness. I want you to hear the story of Jim and Karen Covell, as told in uh, Bob Record's book, Made to Count. It's a little bit lengthy story, but you'll feel the, the power of it as I read. Jim and Karen Covell found their calling in Hollywood. Jim is a composer for television and films, while Karen is a producer. Both have a realistic perspective of the entertainment industry. As Jim says, people who are truly called to make a difference here have an amazing tenacity. Hollywood is a tough place. Both Jim and Karen have learned that you need to look at people differently when you're in Hollywood and on a mission for Christ. Karen experienced this firsthand when she received a call from, West, from, the West, from a West Coast producer to be an associate producer for Headliners and Legends with Matt Lyre a one-hour celebrity profile show on MSNBC. I was so excited about being invited because I knew there were already a couple of Christians in that office doing a great job, and I love documentary work. At the first meeting, people sat around the table and brought ideas of those they would love to see profiled. I had a list, a list of people, and on the top of my list was Billy Graham. But after some discussion, the decision was made to start with Hugh Hefner of Playboy. Karen's first reaction, it really disturbed me. I came home to Jim and I said, I don't think I can do this. And Jim sat and looked at me and said, you know, you need to start praying right now for Hugh Hefner and for the opportunity God is going to give you. Karen felt like she'd been hit by a ton of bricks. After all, Paul went to Athens and Corinth, the seat of pagan influence and sexuality in his day. Why should she run from the Playboy Mansion? 
And so the next day, while talking to Rick, her producer, Karen took the risk of sharing the conversation she and her husband had had the night before. Knowing he might not understand her supportive perspective, her jaw dropped when he responded, you know, I've struggled with this, doing this interview. But together, as producer and associate producer, Rick and Karen decided to develop a different slant on the story. They would focus not simply on Hefner's successes and renown, but on why he became who he did. After all, everybody has a story. When the day of the interview arrived, they sat down with Hugh Hefner, and the producer asked questions based on their research. What was Hefner's parents like? What was his upbringing? What characterized the early days of his life? Imagine the shocked crew listening as Hefner began to pour out how he had been raised in a Puritan home of religious tradition. His parents believed in God, but not a God of grace or love or compassion. Theirs had been a rigid religion. They never told Hefner nor his brother ever that they loved him. And his mother never kissed him because she wanted to avoid germs. And so Hefner set out to find love wherever he could. With dry eyes, Hefner recalled how his parents had given him a blanket when he was a child, his security blanket. He painted a very vivid picture of a little boy going to bed at night, hugging his blanket, the only thing he had to hug, the only thing that returned any warmth. The blanket was bordered with bunnies. It became his bunny blanket. Hefner recounted how as a boy he always wanted a puppy, but his parents, especially his mother, said that dogs spread germs so there couldn't be one in their house. It was only after they discovered a tumor in Hefner's ear that they thought, it would, that they, thought they would finally buy Hefner a dog. No one could have predicted, however, that the dog would unexpectedly die after just five days. Hefner recalled how he wrapped his dying dog in that bunny blanket as a means to comfort the puppy. But when the puppy died, his mother buried the dog and burned the blanket. Both sources of his deepest, deepest comfort were suddenly gone. And then he said, very matter-of-factly, I guess I'm still just that little boy trying to find love. Karen said, the room was hushed in silence as we all sat and listened to this famous man pour out his story. We realized the gaping void that existed deep in this man's soul. He went on to tell us that every Friday night he gets together with close friends and watches old romantic movies because he's still searching for the love that he never had. And I realized that this man had confused sex with love and had turned a desperate need into a way of making money. It was after the interview that I had the privilege of writing Mr. Hefner a letter. I thanked him for the opportunity to tell his story. I thanked him for the time he allowed us to get to know him better. And I told him that in spite of all he had accomplished, I still believe there was one thing still missing in his life. He hadn't met a loving God and did not know him personally. And so I challenged him to seek him out. I was amazed when two weeks later he wrote me back. He thanked me for the book. And he thanked me for the interview that he said he enjoyed very much and he would consider my words. That following Christmas, after running into him again, I gave him a beautiful Bible with his name on the front. Now, does that necessarily mean it's going to change Hefner's life? No. But what it does mean is that the Covells understand what it means to be salt and light in the workplace. Now, to let God use you, here's what you need for a ministry. 
Okay? Here's what you need for a ministry at work. First, a growing, incredible Christian lifestyle. That's level one. Notice I didn't say a perfect Christian lifestyle, just a growing one. Here's the way Titus 2.9 puts it. It says, urge slaves to obey their masters. We could put it in 21st century terms, urge workers to obey their employers and try their best to satisfy them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy. In this way, they will make people want to believe in our Savior and God. Guys, listen. A Christian lifestyle at work is foundational to your ministry at work. Secondly, you need to pray for the opportunity to interact with others. If you pray and say, God, just give me some opportunities where I can be salt and light. As you live this more credible Christian lifestyle, I promise you, if you pray sooner than you think, people will enter your life and they'll ask for help or ask for directions or ask you what's different about you. It'll surprise you. It'll be in a, it'll be in a, a multitude of ways that you get to salt your workplace. Third, for a ministry at work, you will need a basic evangelism skill. 1 Peter 3.15 puts it this way. If anybody asks why you believe as you do, be ready to tell him and do it in a gentle and respectful way. Here's the way I think of it in terms, since we're talking about manhood, here's the way I think about it in terms of authentic manhood. If Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived, I'm talking in the masculine terms now, which I think he is, and his priority was to connect people to God, then the most manly thing that you'll ever do in your life is to connect someone to God. But here's the question. Do you know how to do that? Somebody came up to you today at work, broken maybe because of losing a loved one or suffering a divorce or just wrestling with the questions of life like a coworker asked my daughter, one day, help me understand what's going to happen to me when I die. Could you answer the question in a way that would be effective? You know, after becoming a Christian in college, some people shared with me a little booklet. This is not the same booklet, but we have one here at the church that just said, hey, go out and share with your friends how they can come to know Christ, and all you have to do is read the booklet. I said, that it? Yeah, just read the booklet. So from time to time, I would encounter people in college and since. And I'd pull out this little booklet and I'd just say these words, can I share this with you? And then without comment or commentary, I would just read it. And at the end of the booklet, it says, would you like to know Jesus Christ personally? And I would read that question and look at them. And to my amazement, they would go, I sure would. And then there was a prayer there I could read. And I would just read the prayer, and they would pray it. And at the end, sometimes with tears in their eyes, they would say, thank you for sharing that with me. I've always wanted to know how I could know God. Now, just to help you, after the session today back at Booth 2, you can pick up one of these little booklets and just look at it. And you may say, I'm not comfortable with doing that. That's okay. But the question is this. When someone asks you how they can know God, how will you comfortably be able to answer that question? If your son 
I remember getting out of the shower one day, and my son was sitting there, and he said, Dad, how can I know God? And you need to have an answer, because that's the most manly thing you will ever do, and the most thrilling thing, by the way. I remember just not too long ago, I was down at Morgan Keegan in an office. I didn't say a word, but I watched one coworker talk to another coworker as we were having lunch, and finally said to him, would you like to invite Christ into your life? And we sat in that office. It was just absolute quiet for about a minute. And that guy said, I sure would. And I've seen that particular guy's life change since that moment. That's what I mean. Here's some other helpful assets that would be good for an effective ministry at work. Knowledge of helpful spiritual resources that you can network people with. Guys, you can be a networker. For instance, if a person at work has financial problems and you know some good resources, you can say, you might try like crown ministry. Or maybe they're struggling in their marriage and you know a good Christian counselor. You can say, I can hook you up with a good Christian counselor. And it could save their marriage. Or maybe they have some addictive issue and you know a good 12-step program like we have here in Celebrate Recovery and you can move them into that and it can change their whole life. You can be a spiritual networker of salt and light at work. Another way is to have off-hour small group studies that you and coworkers can do together. Maybe you can help arrange one. Uh, Paul Bacon down in Houston, Texas, who is a senior engineer with the NASA space program, he brings the senior engineers together every Wednesday, and they do men's fraternity by video. He's been doing it for years, and periodically he'll send me a little email. Say, man, we had a great session today. Here's a senior engineer with other senior engineers. They're sending probes to Mars. But in Houston, in that little office, they're coming to terms with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That's a real man. That's a real man, guys. Now, that brings me to level three. We'll be a little quicker here. But level three is this. It takes a little more seasoned faith to move to level three. Letting God bless the world with successes. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why we were created. And as a Christian, many of the good works I can do for God will come, listen guys, will come from the successes that I achieve at work. My successes at work becomes my platform off of which I can bless the world and change it. For instance, I can use the financial rewards for my work to help others. With my money, I can help finance good, the good works of others, both in the community and around the world. I can mentor younger men with my work wisdom. And by the way, there are younger men all over this audience that would like a seasoned veteran of work to help them understand work better. Or I can use my work skills away from my work to change the world in some positive way. I've seen that with so many guys. A medical doctor doing medical missions. A guy who's a builder doing building projects in the community. Serving on nonprofit boards or creating little social agencies, spiritual social agencies to help people in need. It's amazing what people can do. Tom, Tom Luce has done some amazing things. He's a friend of mine I, I've gotten to know because we both serve on a board together down in Dallas, Texas. And Tom is a successful lawyer. And now that success has allowed him to address an even bigger world. 
because his well-honed entrepreneurial skills, legal skills, and organizational skills that he's developed over the years have moved him to a, into a place of life change and of community change and world change. I think God wanted him in. I'll let Bob Buford kind of tell you the rest of the story in his book, Finishing Well. Here's what he said. Tom one day realized that God had given him his start in life through education. And that's where he really wanted now to focus his service. He was the son of a single mother who worked as a sales clerk in a small shop in an upscale community. They lived in a modest apartment because they were in, Highland, in the Highland Park School District. And Tom had the opportunity because of that to go to some of the finest schools in the country, even though financially they weren't well off. Good schooling made Tom's upward mobility possible, and he never forgot that. I first got involved in education reform because Ross Perot asked me to. Ross was our biggest client, and he volunteered me for a couple of projects, so that's why I did it. But once I got involved, I was overwhelmed by the sense of gratitude for my own education. But in the background, soon developed a righteous anger because I had such a good education. And here were kids all around me, crippled for life, by the very schools that should be helping them succeed. So I formed a nonprofit organization called Just for Kids. I knew 20 or 30 talented school principals, so I convened them. The problem was that I wanted to change the schools in the state of Texas, but I didn't have any knowledge of how to do that. So I got them together and I learned, and we learned together how to measure success, how to replicate it, how to create a best practice scenario. The essence of what we're about today is measuring success, figuring out how those schools do it, and then convening other schools to do the same. From 1994 until today, Just for Kids has had some amazing results. We're now in 16 states, and we just got a grant that will help us go to all 50. We've trained 7,000 principals and teachers in Texas, and we're beginning to see the payback in terms of quality and classroom results. My, my long-term goal is that I'd like to know that I've helped a million kids achieve their God-given potential. I think that's what public, public education is all about, helping children maximize their God-given talents. Everyone has a bundle of gifts, and the schools can help each child maximize his or her talent. I'd like to know that I've helped a lot of kids, and that means taking Just for Kids to all 50 states and teaching best practices to 100,000 principals and teachers and 65 million kids. And that's my goal. Now, yours may not be as dramatic as Tom Luce, but here's what I want you to know. God has a goal for you. And he wants to will and work for his good pleasure, even if it's in a small thing, even just one co-worker he wants to go to work with you today. Let me conclude today's session with this exhortation. Believe it, guys. If you're a Christian man here and you have a job, <laughs> you're on a mission from God. You are. It's called the Great Mission. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, that is Christ followers, of all the nations. And you may say, man, I, I don't even know where to begin. Begin at level one. Just let Christ work in you and move from there and be amazed at what He can do with you at work. It's a call to show your coworkers through your life at work what God can do. 
And it's also a call to tell your coworkers when the opportunity presents itself in a winsome way how they can find God for themselves. You know, in that movie Schindler's List, you saw that moving scene of all those hundreds of Jewish people gathering around Oscar Schindler who had saved them because of his work. They were honoring him. They were giving him a moment of thanks. Guys, look at me for just a moment. Did you know for many men in this audience, a moment like that awaits for you? It does. I want to, get, I want to expand your vision. A moment like that awaits for you. A moment when a coworker or coworkers, one day in eternity, will seek you out. And they will say things like this. Because of the way you lived, you gave me hope to keep living. Because of the encouragement that you gave me that day at work, my life turned around. Because of that counselor you connected me with, my marriage was saved. Because of that little small group study you organized before work early in the morning, my life was totally changed. And they will say to you, and because you brought me in the office that day and had the courage to tell me how to become a Christian, I want you to know that's why I'm here today with you in eternity. Thank you, they will say, for giving to the Lord because I am a life that was changed. It's called taking God to work. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.